Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women through their stories. As a wordsmith, there are many words one could use to describe Helen Moffat, but the one that springs to mind is prolific. Helen's a writer, a poet, a teacher, an academic, and her books cover topics as diverse as cricket and children's books, environment and erotic fantasy. But it's her editing skills that have made her such an incredibly valuable ally for so many writers. She recently ran an online course for the University of Cape Town on the art and craft of editing, and she's sure to do so again. But I caught up with her at the Women's Library at Artscape in Cape Town and asked her first what, in her view, editing is exactly. Editing is a whole lot of things. It's, it's, it consists of multiple layers. I think that the layperson's understanding is that an editor is somebody who goes through a manuscript cleaning up the grammar mistakes and picking up the typos and the spelling errors. And that is the tiniest part of editing. It is the easiest part of editing. It is by far the least challenging. And it happens very, very late in the editing stage. It usually comes falls under um, line editing, and sometimes even the proofreader is, do, is responsible for that job, certainly for picking up typos. So, um, so many things need to happen in terms of editing a manuscript before you get to correcting grammar and idiom and spelling. And I've just been... I'm, I'm currently teaching an online course for the University of Cape Town's Extramural Studies Department on editing for professionals and beginners. But I've also done a course for them on um, editing for writers because a lot of writers want to know how to edit their own work, which is a difference, very different to the actual writing. Um, I mean, there's a, there is a huge overlap between rewriting and editing your own work, but a lot of authors were interested. But at the moment, I am, te- I am presenting seminars on those who want to charge professionally to work on other people's manuscripts. Okay. Let me stop you right there, because I think thereby hangs a big tale. Uh, The idea of being a professional editor means that you come with fresh eyes and, uh, you know, a complete overview, whereas if it's your own work, it's extremely difficult to edit your own work because you have gone to all this trouble to write this beautiful stuff. You're not going to be slashing it to pieces. So just describe the difference between maybe editing your own work and being a professional editor as a professional editor what do you have to do a piece of copy turns up on your mm-hmm. uh, you know desk what do you do with it right well the first rule is get a brief from the publisher um, or from some the writer t- sometimes if it's been professionally published if this is a manuscript that i'm being sent because a publisher has already accepted it then no I get the brief from the publisher. The author doesn't have much say at this point. Um, They will hopefully have been in an extensive dialogue and conversation with the publisher before it even reaches my desk. It will have been through rewrites and a review and an assessment process. What I am often given at this point, part of the brief, is asking for all readers' reports and assessments um, and then very often being the one to gauge whether or not the author the writer, has rewritten in accordance with those instructions. And sometimes 
should they have or shouldn't they? Um, not all feedback given by uh, assessors is valid. Um, you have to be very pragmatic. You have to ask the publisher, what do you specifically want? It's no good, for example, um, doing making a change that an assessor considers necessary if it doesn't improve that the way that book will land for that particular market. Mm-hmm. So it's very pragmatic at the stage. I want a brief. Do you want me to cut 10,000 words from this? I can imagine all of the authors and the you know listening to this right now flinching, but it will be: Do you need me to cut ten thousand words? Um, do you want me to pare down the list of characters? Do you want me to fill in the plot holes? Um, there's an enormous amount of feedback that's going on there, and then also sort of like which, who is this for? And I think that that's something that authors. Particularly struggle with. Let me, let me stop with the, with the struggling authors because, mm. uh, w- you know, when one talks about editing, very often one just does imagine that it's just really cutting it down, get mm. rid of all the, the darlings and all the sort mm. of surplus words and all that sort of thing. But in fact, it's more than that. It's it's uh, you use the word improve. Um, which is not necessarily something the author, the writer, is going to be able to do because they thought it was brilliant the first time around, or at least they, they hoped that it was brilliant the first time around. So, And you talk about cutting 10,000 words. I remember talking to a very well-known author who was advised to cut the first 17 chapters, and I thought, oh. So what, as a... Uh, that might even have been me. <laughs> Good well, I still remember being told to lose the first 40,000 words of my novel, Charlotte, just on the cutting room floor. Oh. So... As an editor, that must have been very hard for you to take. But we'll get on to your own work just in a minute, because I'm thinking that improving something doesn't necessarily mean simply cutting. It means changing the meaning. So you get a, a piece of copy that's come mm. to you for improvement. As you're reading through it, what are you looking for that you think will help improve it? What, what, what's your first port of call? Well, I'm going to go back a few layers and talk about different kinds of editing. And um, very often what happens in the professional industry is that one is asked to do a development edit or a structural edit. Sometimes these are mushed together. Sometimes they are kept Just separate. Just describe development and structural edit? A development editing is where you take a broad overview does if if it's if it's fiction does the story work does the narrative hang together is it plausible um is the writing compelling enough um are there too many characters are there too few characters are the characters two-dimensional um is there too much going on um and then structural is where you look at the shape is there a clear um flow or does the manuscript get bogged down? Does it make big, awkward leaps? Um, and especially for nonfiction, you have to look very carefully at structure. Structure is hugely important in nonfiction manuscripts. If you think about it, if you're reading a fiction novel, you might get chapter headings, but uh, you won't get headings. Whereas if you think about the average non-fiction book that you read, there will be multiple headings um, and headings of different levels. So you look at how the, whole, how the text on the page needs to be organized so that the reader has a map going through the whole time so that they've got a, a, a sort, of, sort of signposts to follow. But you, you will do a structural edit on both fiction and non-fiction, um, you know, but sort of sometimes that's also where you're quite ruthless with fiction, as in this entire chapter can go. 
This ruthlessness is really what, and, and you talk about the uh, writers who might be listening thinking, oh, somebody's going to mess with my stuff. I mean, as an editor, are you then in a position to be saying, I think it would be better if you got rid of this character, or would it be better if you actually made this the starting point of the book? Mm. I mean, are you an, or do you make those recommendations and then does it go back to the author and or publisher? If you're doing a development or a structural edit, the understanding is that 95% of the cases, it's then got to go back to the author. And you give them your comments, um, everything that you've, re your recommendations, your suggestions. And at this point, you don't know what effect those cuts or reshapings are, are, are going to have. So it's very much a matter of try this out. So you do send it back to the author, and uh, if the author sort of kicks up, it's the publisher's job to say to them... Take I'm it or leave it. Yeah. Well, not necessarily take it or leave it, but you need to work with this person. They do actually know what they're talking about. Um, and, of course, then you have to kind of... It's, it's a hard thing to do because readers' reports are often how people break into publishing, but certainly for a structural or development edit, you need somebody with a lot of experience. This all sounds like a very timely, time-consuming process. How long does it take? I mean, how long is a piece of string? But how long might it take for you to edit uh, a manuscript? It depends entirely on what I'm presented with, as you say, uh, as long as a piece of string. But it, you will be just listening to me. You will be starting to get an idea of why editing is so poorly paid. Because editing really does expand to fit the available time because you can actually polish something almost forever and the rougher a manuscript is the more raw it is the longer it takes to fix so several things determine the time the length of the manuscript whether or not it needs to be preceded down whether or not the author has the capacity to do that themselves or if they need a lot of help doing it preceding uh, uh, which is a form of editing sometimes referred to as overwriting is hugely time consuming but if you're just if if the authors say let's say it's their third novel or it's their, 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 their it's 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 their first monograph but they've written several journal articles as an academic or essays beforehand if they if if, if they're fairly comfortable and the manuscript is, say, 100,000 words and um, they're, they're fairly fluent in the language in which they were writing, which is absolutely not something that you can assume in anywhere in Anglophone Africa, then you're looking at three to six weeks. Mm. And, um, and and then sort of like the publisher tells you what the budget for those three to six weeks is. And then when you've both finished kind of wiping the tears of hysterical mirth from your eyes, you just get on and you do it, which is why we're all um, overworked and underpaid if you're an editor. And which is why you're doing the course, um, are yes. giving people advice. I mean, you talked a lot about structure and content and building it and headings, et cetera, et cetera. What about the the obvious, which is the quality of the writing. I mean, that you can't change. It's one of the, you've either, it's either going to be good or not good, whatever good may be. Is that something which you are able to do anything about? Are you able to critique it in any way? Let me explain it this way. If you sing in the shower, it does not necessarily mean that you can record your songs and that they will be enjoyable for others to listen to. So anyone can write, absolutely anyone could write, anyone can tell a story and sometimes those stories are 
important. The gift, however, the voice, the tone, is usually unique. And that can't be taught, however it can be developed. The author has to do the hard work. I mean, you look at somebody like Lauren Bierkus and you look at her um, trajectory over her seven novels and the improvement because she was so she was prepared to put in the hours. She was prepared to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And if you look at, for example, um, I loved Moxieland, her first novel, but if you look at that and then you look at Zoo City and then you look at The Shining Girls, the jump, I still remember the jump. The Zeusity and Moxieland are great novels, but the jump when she got to Shining Girls really amazed me. And she had, and I know this because I am her editor, she works and she works and she rewrites and she rewrites. So there's not much you can do there except constantly tell your author when they're getting it right. And you will see now that now this is where my career is a bit unusual, or maybe not, but I'm lucky that I work with the same authors over and over again. And then you really are able to say to somebody, these are the directions in which you need to go. And, I mean, the other thing is is that as you get to know them better, you can critique their writing style far more ruthlessly. So, um, you know, and I use Lauren as a good example because I have complete carte blanche from her to discuss, you know, there's no author-editor confidentiality. She has waived it. And um, there are times she's used bad metaphors, um, and I've said, no, you can't have that. And she's begged and pleaded, and I've said, no, it's coming out. Or sometimes I've let it stay, and then six months later she said to me, she will say to me, you were right. Um, but in, in fact, Lauren very rarely writes a poor metaphor, but what she used to do in her earlier work was she used to use too many images. And I, I used to call it, it's a phenomenon, it's very common in uh, uh, fiction writers, I used to call it a phenomenon wearing the entire contents of the jewellery box at once. So all of my authors are used to seeing in the margin where they've got a shower of very bombastic images and very colourful writing, and I'll write, pick one. They've got to pick one phrase or one metaphor or one image or one simile, and it's got to be the best. But I let them decide that. It sounds like it's really essential for there to be a lot of respect between the editor and the author so you you know you know where each other are going but so you've been talking a lot about professional editing and a lot of what you've said now about Lauren Bjorkis's writing is relevant to trying to edit your own work Mm -hmm. so when you spent years three four six ten years writing something very difficult to then sit back and edit it but but you can try what what would be the sort of like the three things that you should do if you're looking to freshen up your work or, or give it an extra chance? Well, my first piece of advice is a cheat. Put it in a drawer and leave it alone. Literally, leave it time to brew. Put it in a drawer and come back to it with fresh eyes when you've done something. Go, go away and do something completely different. Go on a holiday, take on a new project, uh, uh, spring clean your house, um, uh, fill the freezer with dinners for the family for the next six weeks, and then go back and pull it out the drawer all over again and see if you can't look at it with fresh eyes. And I've even got short versions. You've finished with something, you can't see the wood for the trees, but you've got to keep on working on it because your publisher wants it next week. Put it in the drawer and go for a walk think about something completely different. 
especially go for a walk in nature if you can. Whatever it is, try to take a break from it and see if you can't come back and look. Find tricks that enable you to look at your writing with fresh eyes. And then the second thing is, does every phrase and sentence work? And by that I mean, is it pulling its weight? It needs to be doing something. It needs to be advancing the narrative or the plot Or it needs, if it's not, if it's come to a standstill and you are now meditating on the cry of the peacock in the formal gardens, um, is the writing, the descriptive writing or the backdrop writing, rich enough and colourful enough and textured enough that it's adding value, not just that it's your... um, And the, the third thing I would say is, because you are so familiar with this, are there elements of backstory that you understand, you get, but the reader isn't? Because one of the things that any, any author who's especially created a fictional world knows, you create vast swathes, costumes, backdrops, backstories, which you then jettison. 80% of the kind of the thinking you do about a story never even shows up on the page. So you need to go through it and say, I know. For example, that um, her parents eloped in the 1950s and that her mother got disinherited and, um, and that's why the family's always financially struggled. And this isn't relevant to the central plot, but you know all of that. So you need some explainers, in other words. Explainers, backdrops, backstories, but at the same time... Um, there's, you can have the, 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 the second thing about, you know, cut what isn't necessary is, um, okay, um, so I was going to say the first thing is, is, is try to find a way to create fresh lenses. The second thing is make sure something's always moving, that every phrase, every word is earning its keep. I'm, very, I'm a very uh, austere editor in that sense, is that I put all of my poor author's manuscripts on diet. You know, absolutely everything has to be working. And then the third thing is, what if you left out? Because you know perfectly well what's going on. You know the backstory, but the author, but the reader doesn't. Your voice of experience is enormous, and just looking at your what it says on your um, on your website, where you give people all sorts of advice, so they're not just phoning you out of the blue for a little mm. bit of advice here and there. And you've worked with so many different authors: Zakes and Dar, Lauren Bjorkus, uh, Ivan Vladisavich, mm. Sarah Lotz, uh, you know, Diana Orbach, Khabeba Badarun, Eleanor Sasulu. The list goes on and on and on and on. As a result, you have a massive collection of manuscripts. Um, which in themselves are gold in, in literary history terms. What uh, You must have sort of amassed a huge amount of not just finished books, but books that you can say, but I worked on that, and the manuscripts and the signed copies. What do you what do? You, do you sit and look, and, uh, look at all this, like a sort of the ghosts of literary South Africa? What do you do with them all? Well, I keep them, um, and I can't keep everything. I mean, it's uh, it's impossible. But um, I've kept a lot. One of the things that I do specifically is that I work on hard copy. I print out manuscripts, and I mark them up on hard copy. But sort of 30 years ago, 25 years ago, that was standard operating, you know, sort of... I, I still remember sort of um, marking up uh, Zakes Madar's ways of dying and it was then given to a typist to capture my 
my chicken scratch scrawls all over it because that was how you worked in those days. Um, now, of course, it's very different. And now people go, str- you know, sort of people say, Helen, we're sending you this manuscript to edit. Here it is as an attachment. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Send me a print copy. But obviously you now work on file as well. And I like that combination. But it does mean that I've got cupboards full of marked up manuscripts and I've tried to you know and I have not kept all of them it's been impossible but I have kept um, what I think are the more important or more interesting ones and um, along with all of my this sounds much posher than it actually is my signed first editions um, of Africana by which I mean I have simply for the last 30 years amassed an enormous collection of local titles that I've edited or proofread or done the reader's report or done the development edit or done, done I've had some hand in the production and I try and get those signed and we did a we did a tally when I moved and um, it's well over 500 books I think amongst them is one hand signed by Andre Brink Oh, gosh. Um, I've got uh, a copy of Andre Brink's biography, um, autobiography, A Fork in the Road, that he gave to me on Valentine's Day, and he inscribed a Valentine's message. But that, the jewel in my crown is a copy of uh, In Our Lifetime, the story of Walter and Albertina Sisulu, which was written by their daughter-in-law, who married their eldest son, Max. And um, that's how Eleanor and I got to be friends, you know, sort of coming up for nearly 25 years ago. And um, I've got a copy that is signed by Eleanor, Albertina and Walter six weeks before he died. You know, and he had Parkinson's at the time and there's his hand and, you know, sort of. It's, it's when I when my home was threatened by fire. Do you remember those terrible Nordic fires? That was literally, you know, along with my cats and my passport and my bank cards, my cell phone, my laptop, and a sort of like a change of clothes. That was in my, you know, because the fire chief told us that we had to be ready to leave in five minutes. And that was the book that was coming with you me. You have to have a little bag packed with all your goodies so that you can just whisk out. It's wonderful that you maintained a relationship with Eleanor Sisulu because she, you know, she also is a very sort of a big figure in literary oh terms, especially course. with children's books. But I'm just thinking about you, and you have been prolific yourself, environmental issues, chiclet, if that's the right word for it, academic books, poetry, mm. all sorts of things that you've written. How do you maintain a relationship with yourself, with your own <laughs> writing? Do, if you write a piece, are you fierce and beastly to yourself, or are you forgiving? Do you too slash your darlings? How do you work? Oh, gosh. That's a really tough one. Um, I always, you know, I look at the vast panoply of things that I write and I sort of rather glibly when people say how on earth do you do all of this I say I'm easily bored but um, and I'm I'm now going to tell a very very funny story about the first time I ever met my Charlotte publisher the British publishers Bonnier who who published Charlotte, my historical novel, which is based, which is a Pride and Prejudice sequel. And um, we also, I got to meet everybody, the cover designer, the editor, the assistant editor, the publisher, the marketing, the salesperson. And the marketing person had done their homework. And she said, now, Helen, I've been searching, I googled Helen Moffat in South Africa. And she said, I came up with four or five people. There's one who's written a cricket book, 
there's an environmental writer, there's a poet, um, there's an academic, Helen Moffat. Which one are you? And I said, um, they're all me. And, you know, they, they don't work like that in the UK. In the UK publishing industry, authors pick extremely narrow niches. And if they go out of those niches, let's say you're a historical fiction writer and you want to start writing thrillers, you pick a non de plume, a nom de plume, so that you don't muddy the waters. So if someone's sitting there saying, oh, yes, I've written about cricket and um, I've written academic, I've written university textbooks and I've written poetry, collect, you know, I've published poetry collections, they, they literally did not know what to do with me. So they all looked at me. So I said, I'm so sorry, I have, and I do not say this to joke about mental health issues at all, but I said, I have multiple writing personality disorder. And my publisher sort of sat bolt upright and sort of took on a thousand-yard stare. And the meeting carried on. And a few minutes later, the assistant editor nudged my publisher in the ribs and said, Margaret, she's joking. <laughs> and Margaret said, oh, thank goodness. I've been sitting here visualising what I was going to do with literary fairs when her different personalities emerged. Well, I think all of your personalities can be found. All information about your books and all the things that you do can be found on your site, which is Helen Moffat. Dot com. Yes. HelenMoffat.com, two Fs, two Ts. Yes. All you and have to do is spell it correctly, M-O-F-F-E-T-T. I always tell people we are not descended from pious Scottish missionaries. We are descended from drunken Irish renegades. Spoken like a true editor. Just very lastly, in closing, this can be a yes-no answer. Is there anything on your, uh, as it were, drawing board at the moment? Are you writing anything right now? I'm trying to write the sequel, sort of sequel to Charlotte, and I'm 50,000 words in, and I shouldn't say that. I'll jinx the whole thing. We look forward to it. Helen Moffat, thank you so much. Thanks, Nancy. Hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh.